Hello, my friends. Welcome to another episode of Deep True Crime. I'm Manny Rodriguez. In today's episode, we are covering the story of the package killer who has finally been identified after more than 30 years has now finally been solved. Thank you for joining me today. If that is the type of content you like to follow, be sure to hit that subscribe button. That way YouTube lets you know whenever I upload content or I go live. My whole goal is to keep you updated on what could go so wrong out there that we need to be a little more aware, a little more careful, and hopefully stay a little more safer. On October 4th of 1990, two Maryland Heights Municipal employees, Alvin Mays and Andre Jones, they had just finished clearing trash from a park that was near an apartment complex close to Page Avenue around 9 a.m. that morning. They headed down Baston Drive, an isolated outer road boxed in by Page on one side and thickets of trees on the other. There, they noticed a brown plastic trash bin sitting in the grassy median between the street and a wooded area. Whoever had put the bin there had pulled a black trash bag real tight over its top and secured it with wire. And there was a smell of rotten decay that was coming from this bin. Mr. Alvin Mays, he says, what the hell is in this thing? As he's approaching it, he undid the wire, removing the bag. His brain struggled to process what he was looking at. His co-worker, Jones, said, that's a human. She had dark hair and wore a halter top. A ligature had been wrapped around her neck, a cloth tied around her mouth and eyes. Her legs were pulled tight against her chest, an unnatural position as if she folded like cardboard. To this day, Alvin Mays vividly remembers her black cross necklace with a jewel in its center. Mays and Jones had just stumbled across the so-called package killer's latest victim. You see, 32 years ago, a serial killer with an M.O. stalked St. Louis, abducting women from the city's south side and then taunting law enforcement by leaving their lifeless bodies in plain view of morning traffic on the outskirts of the metro. Over the course of 1990, the package killer murdered Robert Meehan, Brenda Pruitt, and Sandy Little, all young mothers. Then the murder stopped. The case went cold. The three women were all but forgotten in the city's collective memory even as their death shaped the lives of those they left behind for decades to come. Cold case detectives never stop pouring over evidence and case files hoping for a break in this case. That break would finally arrive earlier this summer of 2022 and prosecutors have formally charged 73-year-old Gary Mulberg for the murders of Mihan, Pruitt, and little, well as another woman, Donna Reitmeyer. The probable cause statement, accompanying the charges say that Mulberg has confessed to killing five women in total. On May 12th of 1991, the body of a 37-year-old Sandra Kane was found on the road alongside I-44 in South City, St. Louis. Now, an autopsy wasn't able to confirm the death but was narrowed down to she was either hit by a car or thrown off 
an overpass. Kane had worked as a sex worker and reportedly victim Sandy Little had told Kane not to go with the man in the station wagon. And the five women, this is the fifth woman that he is said to have confessed to killing. Mihan, Pruitt, and Little, they were all abducted from the Southside Stroll, which was the city's red light district, running along Cherokee Street between Jefferson and Gravois Avenue. Mulberg has confessed to taking them to his house in Bell Ridge, where the victims were subjected to numerous acts of torture before Mulberg strangled them. He then left their lifeless bodies in conspicuous packages between a pair of mattresses in a large trash bin and a plywood box along major highways where they would easily be found. One frustrated detective told the St. Louis Post-Dispatch at the time, he's playing games with us, leaving bodies out in the open, and he's doing a good job. A 1991 report created by the FBI's Violent Criminal Apprehension Program refer to the crimes as the Packer killings. In time, the unknown serial killer became known as the Package Killer. For more than three decades, the Package Killer remained the city's most notorious serial murderer to elude justice until now. The Package Killer murders began on March 22, 1990, when police say Mulberg abducted Robin Meehan from the stroll. Mihan, already a mother of two at 18, had established a call girl phone line with her friend Faye Sparks as a way to make money via sex work while avoiding the worst perils of walking the street. However, on that night, the escort service's phone sat silent in its cradle. Mihan, in the grips of a severe crack cocaine addiction, was desperate for money. Her brother Tommy Mihan, he said, I told her to take a Valium and come down, crash. Instead, she went to the stroll. She took Faye with her. Now, Tommy Meehan, he worked security for his sister and Sparks as he battled his own addiction. Meehan and Sparks, they parked on Texas Avenue near Cherokee Street. As a rule, when one of the women got in a man's car, she would ask him to circle the block once so the other woman could get a look at the car and its driver. This provided a measure of security, but it didn't always work. That night, Mihan went around the corner onto Cherokee Street looking for a customer, and Sparks sat in the car waiting for a drive-by that never happened. Gary Mulberg had abducted his first victim. One gentleman, Larry Kennedy, said he knew Gary Mulberg in the early 1990s when the two of them hang hung out at the same diner in Overland, Missouri. Kennedy says that he remembers Mulberg as a condescending narcissist, twice divorced and openly feared by his then-girlfriend, a diner waitress. Larry says he was always staring down at somebody. Gary didn't like anybody who didn't respect the way Gary lived. Mulberg worked construction both in St. Louis and around the country. Various people who knew him said he was a creepy man with a hostile demeanor who often had bizarre ideas. When he was in town, he lived in a rundown house on an out-of-the-way street in Bell Ridge. According to a 1993 police report, his home was defined by its filthy disarray in a basement where he maintained a secret room. Given what we know now, 
That basement became what was almost certainly a torture chamber for Robin Meehan, a place where Mulberg murdered her. Joe Bergoon, a St. Louis City detective in the early 1990s who now works cold cases, says that Meehan's body was found with quite a bit of blood and a ligature around her neck. There was a stab wound to the head that pierced the scalp but didn't go through and contusions on her face, cheek, wrist, and feet. Some of these were defensive wounds implying a struggle. Others were post-mortem. Joe Bergoon says, my guess was she was in pain. Corky Sanders, a former boyfriend of Meehan's, was shown photos of her corpse taken by the medical examiner. The photos show unthinkable torture that still haunts Sanders 30 years later. And Corky Sanders, he says, whoever did that to Robin deserves to be sent to hell the same way he sent Robin to heaven. Four days after abducting Meehan, Mulberg dumped her lifeless body along State Highway E, which is 60 miles northwest of St. Louis in Lincoln County. He would tie two mattresses around her remains, leaving a gory scene soon found by a lone commuter. Alvin Mays and Andre Jones, they made a similarly gruesome discovery seven months later on October 4th, 1990, where they would find Brenda J. Pruitt. But it would take months of painstaking work to identify the decomposed remains, but a dedicated fingerprint analyst named Janet Majors eventually found they belonged to 27-year-old Brenda Pruitt, whose family had reported her missing on May 5th, 1990, almost exactly five months to the day before her body was found. She lived near the intersection of South Grand Boulevard and Cherokee Street. Pruitt's granddaughter, Antonelle Jackson, says neither she nor her sister, also named Brenda, know very much about their grandmother. Nobody ever talks about her because it's too painful, Jackson said. Jackson did recall one ominous story she'd heard from her mom about one of the last times Pruitt was seen alive. Pruitt took Jackson's mom, Danielle, out for ice cream on Cherokee Street. While the nine-year-old ate, Pruitt got into an argument with a man in an alley. Pruitt came back to her daughter in tears. Shortly after that, Danielle didn't see her mom for weeks and the family filed a missing person report. The ice cream story has become family lore and Brenda Pruitt's granddaughters can't help but wonder if the man their grandmother got into an argument with was Mulberg. The younger Brenda Pruitt says, my mother Danielle died three years ago. She was depressed her whole life she was very scared with anxiety through the roof. This man has caused us more agony than I could ever explain. Mulberg, he worked for Cherrick Construction, a company that was headquartered in Maryland Heights, Missouri. Authorities long suspected that the package killer may have been employed in construction. The killer used Connex cable, a material used by electricians to wire houses, to tie the mattresses around Meehan's body and to tie the trash bag over the bin containing Pruitt. Detectives interviewed employees of Biner Hardware where the trash bin Pruitt was found in had been purchased. They identified a semi-regular who may have bought the bins. Police showed the employees photos of three suspects. The employees didn't recognize any of them and none of the suspects was 
Mulberg. By the time Pruitt's body was discovered in Maryland Heights in October of 1990, Mulberg had already abducted his next victim, Sandy Little, whom Mulberg held captive in his Bell Ridge house. Police do believe that Little shared the basement with Pruitt's dead body. Former detective Joe Bergoon, he said, he had two people. Whoever it was had a couple of bodies at the same time. Little, 21 years old, she disappeared Labor Day weekend 1990 from the Southside Stroll and was found dead five months later on February 17th, 1991 in O'Fallon, Missouri, which is 30 miles west of St. Louis. A motorist on his way to work that morning discovered her body alongside Interstate 70 crammed in a home fashioned box. Mr. Burgoon, he said he was smart about where he dumped the bodies. He knew to spread them out across jurisdictions to make things harder for us. In addition to the Connex cable, other physical evidence connected the murders of Pruitt, Meehan, and Little. The three women had hair from the same type of dog on the clothes they were found in, meaning they were likely held in close proximity to the same animal. According to a 1993 police report, Mulberg did indeed have a dog in the early 1990s. All women were found with ligatures around their neck, their faces covered. Like Meehan and Pruitt, Little was also a new mother when Mulberg allegedly killed her. She'd given birth to her son, Chris Day Jr. in 1989. In the months prior to her death, Little lived with her infant son and her boyfriend Chris Day in Day's mom's apartment above an antique store at Nebraska and Cherokee Street. A sense of duty to her newborn son motivated Little to get clean and get a more stable job. She died wearing the tattered remains of the uniform from her fast food job. But her old life still beckoned. Day says Little worked the stroll in 1990 and he was was at her side, himself hustling for clients. He kept an eye on her, and she kept an eye on him. But the night she was abducted, he was locked up in city jail. And he says, I've never been able to go visit her grave. I couldn't face her. Now, I guess I'll have to. After February 1991, Burgoon says the St. Louis Major Case Squad came to an agreement with federal law enforcement. The next time the package killer struck, local police would seal off the scene so that investigators from the FBI could fly in from Quantico, Virginia and process all the evidence. However, the package killer never struck again, at least that was the thinking for three decades. Investigators assumed that because dead women stopped showing up in containers along highways, the package killer must have stopped taking lives. But the notion that serial killers never change their methods is more fiction than fact. Hannah Quinette is a professor emeritus of criminology from the University of Indiana, Indianapolis, and one of the few academics who studies serial killers. And she says they change their MO all the time. They want to kill as many people as they can for as long as they can. They don't want to get caught. A man who lived on Miami Street in South St. Louis was the police's prime suspect for the package killer murders at the time. Police interviewed him on multiple occasions, showing him pictures of the victims. He tells the Riverfront Times nearly 30 years later, he didn't worry because I didn't know any of them. He even added that he believed that meant 
the police wouldn't be able to pin anything on him. But then came one more photo. Then there was a blonde that I did recognize. And I thought, this is not good. In 1992, the Post-Dispatch reported that police had physical evidence connecting the man to Meehan's murder, likely the blonde the man had recognized. Police asked Lincoln County's prosecuting attorney to bring charges. Ed Gruwak, now the general counsel for the Missouri Gaming Commission, he worked for the Lincoln County Prosecuting Attorney's Office in 1990. According to Gruwak, the only physical evidence connecting Meehan to the man on Miami Street was candle wax found on Mihan's body. She was apparently tortured before she was killed. This guy had this candle with the same type of wax, but that candle was sold in hundreds of different outlets. The man was questioned extensively on numerous occasions, but never charged. Throughout the 90s, Burgoon and other detectives continued work in the case investigating more than 450 leads over three years. Seen in the picture here, Detective Sergeant Jody Weber, the woman who would eventually catch Mulberg, says that it was only dumb luck that allowed him to evade capture at the time. She says he was never on any detective's radar. More than 50 investigators worked on these cases back in the day and not one linked anything to him. Bill Carson worked the case as a detective in the early 1990s. Now he is the chief of police in Maryland Heights, a municipality with only one unsolved homicide in its entire 37-year history, Brenda Pruitt. Over the years, there were a lot of persons of interest, people that we thought were capable of doing this that we looked at long and hard. Mulberg was not on our Radar. In 1995, a series of similar murders occurred in St. Petersburg, Florida, and St. Louis detectives were intrigued enough to travel there to investigate. They had no idea that the package killer had been sentenced to life in prison earlier that year. That case didn't involve packages or sex workers. It didn't even involve a woman. Born in 1949, Mulberg grew up in Bellefontaine neighbors at a time when the North County municipality was experiencing rapid growth. Mulberg's father, William, had been a policeman until he left to join the military during World War II earning a Purple Heart after being wounded in the Pacific Theater. He later served as mayor of Bellefontaine Neighbors for one term, 1955 to 1957. Less is known about Moberg's mother, Palmyra. One of Moberg's ex-wives tells the Riverfront Times, Christine worked in accounting for a department store. In 1966, when Gary was 17 years old, the family moved to Salina, Kansas, where his father took a job with an oil company. Like their father, both Gary and his brother Ronald enlisted in the military during the Vietnam War. Gary completed basic training in 1968, though it's not clear if he was ever deployed overseas. That same year, his older brother, who was 21, died during the battle in the Mekong Delta. Gary married for the first time in June 1970. A grainy photo in the Selena Journal announcing the wedding shows a tall Mulberg flashing a toothy grin 
the photo, even in its resolution, belies the terror that was to come. In February 1972, Mulberg was charged with rape, kidnapping, and aggravated robbery after breaking into a house in Selena where an 18-year-old girl was home alone. She told police the 23-year-old Mulberg held her at knife point raped her, and then forced her to accompany him to the bank to withdraw $25 to hand over to him. A judge ordered a mental competency examination be done on Mulberg prior to his trial. He was convicted of the robbery charge, but acquitted of rape. After spending a month in prison, he was ordered to check into treatment at VA facility in Topeka, though it's not clear if he ever did. In January the following year in Selena, a 14-year-old was babysitting even younger children when Mulberg knocked on the door asking if he could use the telephone. Brandishing a knife, he told her he was going to rob the house. He then tied up and gagged the young girl, locked her in the bathroom, and began filling the bathtub with water. However, a car drove by and a panicked Mulberg, thinking it was the girl's parents, fled. Mulberg was again charged with aggravated assault. At trial, Mulberg's lawyer claimed that Mulberg had gone insane at the time of the incident. Mulberg's wife, mother, and psychiatrist testified for the defense. The jury found Mulberg guilty and he was sentenced to five years in prison. Later in 1973, Mulberg's first wife divorced him. He had little contact with his wife or son from that first marriage thereafter. That same year, his mother and father moved back to St. Louis where his father died of a heart attack soon after. Upon his release from prison, Mulberg attended classes at Central Methodist College and Central Missouri State University before moving to St. Louis in the late 1970s. He married again in 1980. The Riverfront Times spoke to the woman now in her 70s who was married to Mulberg for six years before divorcing him in 1980. She describes Mulberg as an unremarkable husband who was just fine as a father. He always had problems with authority at work, she says. He always resented having to listen to a boss. After the divorce, she says, he wasn't particularly interested in spending time with his two children who lived with her but also frequently spent time with Mulberg's mother. Mulberg himself was rarely a presence in their lives. She says, I got away from him and I was glad I did after I found out that he killed that guy later on. When told why exactly a reporter was calling inquiring about her ex-husband, she adds, Now I'm really, really glad I could have been dead. In February 1991, the same month that Mulberg allegedly left Little's body beside a highway in O'Fallon, Missouri, a fire destroyed a portion of Mulberg's home in Bell Ridge. The timing of the fire is significant. It occurred in the basement where Mulberg almost certainly had been keeping the bodies of his victims, in some cases for several months over the past year, and it likely destroyed important evidence. In those years, Mulberg was a regular at the diner, a restaurant open 24 hours a day in Overland, Missouri. Larry Kennedy, as I mentioned earlier in this story, he says, it was your friendly neighborhood coffee shop. Aside from the people who went there at night, Larry was also a regular from that time. And he said, at night, the diner became host to a wild crowd where people avoided telling each other their last names. Mulberg was part of that night crowd. Kennedy says, you'd see him there at 10, 11, 12 o'clock and then he'd be there off and on the rest of the night. Mulberg stalked his waitress girlfriend, often posting up at the diner for the majority of her shift. When someone Mulberg didn't like came in to eat, Mulberg would wait outside by his van, peering in until the person he disliked 
left. Kennedy says she was scared to death of him. Deborah Layton, who frequented and later worked at the diner, says that among the milieu of regulars, Mulberg rubbed just about everyone the wrong way. She says Gary Mulberg was crazy. He was always bringing women to his house. He was a very bizarre man. He had bizarre ideas and he was dirty, like he never cleaned himself. He kind of thought he was it, but no one really wanted anything to do with him. From what I learned later, he was picking up waitresses from waffle houses and places like that. Both Leighton and the brother of a woman Mulberg dated at the time say that Mulberg often bragged about being an officer in the Freemasons and had a highly inflated sense of his importance. Layton says he always talked about what a secret organization it was and that they helped children so nobody would ever investigate the Mason. Larry says he was more narcissistic than he was anything. Layton adds that Mulberg was always hanging out with a man who openly displayed his gun and claimed to be a police officer even though everyone knew he was a security guard. Layton refers to him as a rent-a-cop. Mulberg had previously worked construction, but in 1993, the 43-year-old was telling others that he was in ailing health. Instead of manual labor, he sold marijuana and dabbled in buying and selling used cars. He later told police that he frequently kept considerable quantities of weed in his basement. Layton says that in the early 90s, Mulberg tried to recruit her husband into his burgeoning marijuana business. Mulberg even showed her husband where he kept his stash. She says he took him over to his house and showed him a false wall in the basement and said, I got all these bricks of weed. Do you want to help me get rid of them? Another diner regular at the time says he was the type of guy who was always sniffing around trying to make a quick buck. In February 1993, Mulberg spread word around the diner that he was trying to unload a 1989 Cadillac Fleetwood. Kenneth Doc Atchison, another regular, was interested in per Kenneth Doc Atchison, another regular, was interested in purchase. Kenneth Doc Atchison, another regular, was interested in purchasing the car. On February er, on February 8th, Atchison told Kennedy and Layton that he was going over to Mulberg's house with $6,000 to buy the car. Both Kennedy and Layton said they were worried about Atchison going by himself as Mulberg had always been a menace and was now involved in large-scale drug dealing. But Atchison, 57 years old, waved his friends off and headed over to Mulberg's house alone. He was never seen alive again. Mulberg, however, showed back up at the diner later that same night, showing off a stack of newly acquired cash. Atchison's family filed a missing persons report, but though Mulberg was immediately a suspect, police waited to search his home. In the following days, according to a 1993 police report, in the following days, according to a 1993 police report, Mulberg contacted at least two people and asked them to construct a plywood box made to his specifications. Investigators would later learn that Mulberg used a makeshift box to store Atchison's body. Mulberg remained in the house for a week with Atchison's dead body in the makeshift coffin in the basement. According to a 1993 police report, he then fled to Illinois telling his rent-a-cop friend that if police searched his basement, he would be 
locked up the rest of his natural born days. From Illinois, he called friends offering them money to go to his house and pretend to do lawn work while checking to see if police were surveilling the premises. He offered one man, Jerry Akers, $20,000 to move the box containing Atchison's body out of the basement. Akers declined. He asked another man to let his dog out, and while he was at it, moved the box containing Atchison's out of the basement. The man agreed to let the dog out, but left the crude coffin alone. Mulberg was arrested one month later on March 27, 1993. The deputy from Wayne County Sheriff's Department in Illinois had no idea he'd handcuffed a serial killer. During interrogation in St. Louis, Mulberg admitted to police that Atchison was dead in his basement, though he swore he hadn't killed him. He began to cooperate with law enforcement, but only because he was trying to pin the murder on his boss at the construction company. Mulberg insisted that he was being framed. Prior to police searching his home, Mulberg told detectives that he had built a secret room in the northeast corner of his basement. He advised that entry to the room could be gained by pushing on a drywall panel just inside the door leading from the basement to the driveway. Mulberg's house near Endicott Park was leveled at some point in the past two years, but old photos show a forlorn-looking vinyl-sided ranch far recessed from East Edgar Avenue. Its rear door led directly to the basement. And everyone agreed that the overbuilt front porch would have concealed whatever Mulberg was doing from any prying eyes on the street. Detectives searching the premises in 1993 found total disarray. Mulberg had been sleeping on a fold-out bed in the living room. Its sheets were soiled and dirty clothes were strewn about everywhere. In the basement's secret room, they found Atchison dead in the hastily constructed wooden box. A crude coffin is how police later described it to the Post-Dispatch. One of the detectives who searched the house, he says they couldn't get his whole body in there. His feet were sticking out. And he adds, this guy must have been a pretty tough old dude because he had a rope around his neck. He'd been stabbed and he'd been shot. They tried to kill him three times different ways. Mulberg had also secured Atchison's hands in a pair of handcuffs. The car Mulberg had claimed to want to sell to Atchison turned out to be stolen. After killing the prospective buyer and taking his $6,000 cash, Mulberg sold it to his boss at the construction company. During Mulberg's 1995 trial, the defense claimed he had been framed by his boss. The jury didn't buy the implausible story, sentencing Mulberg to life in prison without the possibility of parole. Doug Seidel, the prosecutor who put Mulberg in prison in 1995, he tells the Riverfront Times through a court spokesperson, we had no information tying him to other crimes. Nowadays, the name Gary Mulberg doesn't ring much of a bell at the diner, which operates under a different name, even for some longtime regulars. The loved ones of those he killed, though, still remember. Atchison's friend Kennedy recalls the moment in the diner right before Atchison went over to Mulberg's house to buy the Cadillac. And Larry says, I told him to stand there and wait for me. I was in my work uniform and I wanted to go up to the house and get a shower and change. Atchison said he didn't want Kennedy coming along. Kennedy says he realized years later that it was probably because Kennedy and Mulberg were perpetually at odds. Kennedy still clearly remembers 
murders that night. And he says, like it was yesterday. Despite his life sentence for Atchison's murder, Mulberg refused to concede his guilt, penning lengthy, long-shot legal motions appealing his conviction on the grounds that his trial had been unfair, the jury biased, and his defense inadequate. By 1999, his options for appeal had been exhausted. Mulberg would be spending the rest of his life in prison. According to a source familiar with Potosi Correctional Center, Mulberg has been a model inmate who keeps to himself and doesn't give corrections staff any problem. Mulberg has been in prison for 29 years when this summer Jody Weber, the detective with the O'Fallon Police Department, showed up to ask him about the murders of Meehan, Pruitt, and Little 32 years prior. O'Fallon, Missouri is where Sandy Little's body was dumped in February 1991. Weber is a 22-year veteran of the force and a member of St. Louis County's major case squad. She arrested infamous killer Pam Hupp. Since 2008, she's taken a keen interest in the package killer cold case. Detectives describe boxes upon boxes of reports, evidence, and other material associated with the case. All of it's stored in the Maryland Heights Police Station. Weber went through it all again, but Mulberg's name was nowhere in the countless pages of interviews and witness statements. Weber says the case became her passion. For 14 years, she worked on it by herself, poring over old reports and re-interviewing key people. But most of all, she was waiting for technology to advance to the point where the remaining pieces of physical evidence from 1990 could be tested for DNA. Her meticulous investigation crawled along for more than a decade. Then, this summer, 2022, a major breakthrough came. And she says, the lab said, we got a hit. We don't know who it is, but we got a hit, Weber recalls. It wasn't long until Weber had a name to match the DNA, Gary Mulberg. Maryland Heights Police Chief Bill Carson acknowledges that Mulberg was not on the radar before that. It wasn't until the DNA match came back then we started looking at this guy and all the pieces started falling into place, says Bill Carson. Weber says that because Mulberg is a prison inmate, his DNA was in the FBI's combined DNA index system, waiting for her to connect it to the murders of Mihan Pruitt and Little. In July, Sandy Little's son, Chris Day Jr., was asked to come to the O'Fallon police station where Weber swabbed his nose for a DNA sample. Weber told him, Chris, I've been working on your mom's case since 2008, and the reason we have you here today is because I'm getting pretty close. Day Jr. battles fentanyl addiction. Like his mother had done, his girlfriend works the streets. It's a tragic repetition of history that gives his father, Chris Day, abundant heartache and worry. Weber needed Day Jr.'s help because the DNA that detectives had from his mother had been compromised. They needed a sample from Day Jr. to prove that Little's DNA was on the same material as Mulberg's. By the summer, police sources said they had four pieces of physical evidence from the three victims that connected back to Mulberg. Weber paid him a visit in Potosi. Weber says he was surprised to see us after 32 years. Mulberg was not in good health, which meant that Weber had to act quickly or risk the man taking his secrets to the grave. Weber says 
I have to be friends with him. Friends is too strong a word. I have to be open to what he says, whether I like it or not. Mulberg was initially hesitant to discuss his heinous crimes. It was hard for him to talk about, she says, describing him as remorseful, if you can believe that. However, Weber says she developed a rapport with Mulberg. The second time she interviewed him, he opened up. She says he described the details of all three gruesome murders, giving her a confession. It almost seemed to give him relief. He wanted to shake my hand at the end of the interview, she says. Weber says she had no choice but to extend her hand as well. It was in everyone's interest that Mulberg remained willing to keep talking. She'd soon find out that he had even more to tell her. On August 5th, friends and relatives of Robin Meehan, Brenda Pruitt, and Sandy Little gathered in a nondescript municipal courtroom in O'Fallon, Missouri to find out who killed the three women 32 years ago. Weber, pictured centered between the families here, had arranged the private event quickly. The family members were only notified the day prior. No one knew for certain what police were going to say beyond that they had good news. In chairs where trespassers and drunk drivers typically wait to have their infractions adjudicated, the dozen or so family members took seats. Weber says, I wanted to give you guys some answers. That's what this is all about. Weber said that she'd be sharing the first name and photo of the man who, though he hadn't yet been charged, she was certain had killed Mihan Pruitt and Little. She said that she had interviewed this man in prison twice and that during the second interview, he had confessed. Several gasped at the word confess. Weber then asked those assembled to share memories of Mihan Pruitt and Little. Geneva Talba, Sandy Little's half-sister, said that she hates that she never got a chance to really know her sister. She says, there was a big age gap. She was 20 when she died. I was just 13, a brat annoying her all the time. She's Talba added, they were somebody's sister, daughter, you know, my mother. Just because you have the devil on your back doesn't make you a bad person. My sister was only 20. She could have gotten out of that situation and become an amazing person. We'll never no. More than anything, over the last 30 years, the family members had felt their loved ones absent. Brenda Pruitt's granddaughter, also named Brenda, said that the only things she knows about her grandmother are that she was petite and energetic, always up on her feet, going for early morning walks. She was also clumsy, a trait the younger Brenda inherited. The younger Brenda says, and that's about all I really know about her. And during this time, mostly they talked about how the murders impacted the families for generations. Talbot says, I'm a paranoid person to this day. My six-year-old child knows that there's bad people out there. And I'm teaching her that at six years old because there are bad people out there. In the wake of his girlfriend's death, Chris Day remained mired in addiction for decades, serving long stints in prison. Burgoon often visited Day when Day would get locked up. He'd show me the picture of Sandy he kept with him. He'd say, this isn't what she'd want, Day recalled. In recent years, Day had settled down, gotten his life on track. Sandy would be proud of me, Day said. He felt that her murder being solved would be an important step toward closure. Though he was upset his son didn't make it to the private meeting that day. What could he have more important than this? He asked afterward. Sandra Mihan expressed gratitude to Weber 
and the other detectives, but she still held bitterness over how the Lincoln County Sheriff's Department had treated her family in 1990. Lincoln County is where Mulberg left Robin's body alongside a Missouri highway, and deputies told her that Robin was not murdered in our fair city. She was just dumped here. After everyone had a chance to speak, Weber displayed a photo of Mulberg, and for the first time, the families of Meehan, Pruitt, and Little saw the face of the man who took their loved one. The group fell silent. The pain that had clung to the families for 30 years now had a face and a name, Gary. The photo of Moberg showed him with a neatly trimmed white goatee, a crown of short white hair around his bald head. He sat upright at the table where Weber interviewed him. He wore a drab prison issue shirt. Tommy Meehan asked if Gary was a St. Louis guy. Weber said he was. Tommy asked, city or county? Weber, carefully with what she could reveal at that moment, said truthfully, he had addresses associated with him in both. Weber explained that Gary had been in prison since 1993 for murder, what kind of murder was that? One of the family members asked. The question had been awkwardly phrased, but there was no good way to ask it. Weber explained that the 1993 murder had been different. The victim had been a man, someone Mulberg knew, the motivation, money. After the meeting, Dave found himself struggling with complicated feelings. He was grateful to Weber, to Burgoon, to everyone who hadn't forgotten about Little. He said of Mulberg, but he ain't going to do a day for this. He's already doing life without. They can't give him anything else. Day's girlfriend Jackie added, but at least he ain't going to hurt no one. Day was convinced he recognized Mulberg from crossing paths with him during a stint in state prison. They said he was quiet. He kept to himself. After the meeting, Little's Stepsister, Barb Studd, said, When it's all said and done, Sandy's killer still gets to eat meals, watch TV, read, make friends if you can do that in prison. But he hasn't suffered. And I don't know if he will ever suffer enough for robbing the lives from these girls and causing the cascading traumas of the children left behind. Talbot says she was sick when she saw Mulberg's photo. I was disturbed that he looked so average, like a grandpa. That face will forever be in my head. I hate his face and I only saw it for five minutes. Knowing he took the lives of these young women without a piece of remorse, there's no way he could feel remorse. He's lived with this just fine for 32 years. I don't think he even had a real desire to confess. He just couldn't deny the hard evidence. I hope he gets death for this. It won't bring these women back, but an eye for an eye. He deserves no less. Gary Mulberg has children and a sister. His family, to some extent, is still in touch with him. An individual who has interacted with him says that he likely fears the reaction from family members once they learn he didn't just kill an acquaintance 30 years ago but also tortured and murdered five women at least three of them young mothers Mulberg's crimes by their nature defy any attempt to make sense of them Weber says that he has not given any reason that he did what he did other than stating it was a dark period in his life. About three weeks after the meeting with the families, Weber went to interview Mulberg for a third time. He didn't have much to say to her. But then, a few days later, Weber got a letter from Mulberg. Details are still scant about the contents of Mulberg's letter, but in it, he confessed to two more.
more murders. Both women. Three months after Mihan's murder, 40-year-old Donna Reitmeyer was out working the stroll with his friend, 24-year-old Sheila Leach. Leach and Reitmeyer had a tight bond, having met while serving time together in prison and now keeping an eye on one another while on the street. Leach told police that on June 3rd, she drove Reitmeyer to the corner of Jefferson Avenue and Chippewa Street where Reitmeyer hoped to make some money. Reitmeyer gave her friend a business card and according to police reports said that if anything ever happened to her, Leach should tell people about this guy. The name on the card was Frank, whom Reitmeyer had dated a few times. She was afraid of him because he seemed obsessed with her stalking her while she was working. Leach went to a nearby KFC to buy a soda, and when she came out, Reitmeyer was gone. Hours went by without Reitmeyer returning, and the next morning, Leach reported her missing. Eight days later, Reitmeyer's body was found in a brown Rubbermaid trash bin near the intersection of South Broadway and Gasconade Street, seven blocks south of the stroll. A price sticker on the bin indicated it had been bought from Biner Hardware, a store with only two locations in town. Brenda Pruitt would be found in a similar trash bin in October. There was talk on the street that Rottmeyer had overdosed and panicked. People around her had put her body in the bin. Police had investigated Rottmeyer's death in connection to the package killer, but never had any definitive proof until Mulberg's written confession. Mulberg says, there is a fifth victim as well, a woman he killed in early 1991. Mulberg told Weber he doesn't remember the fifth victim's name, if he ever even did know. All he can say is that he left her body in a metal container in a self-service car wash. Weber is now pouring through missing persons report from that time frame. There's likely another family out there who for three decades has been left to wonder what happened to their daughter, sister, mother. And that is said to be the body of 37-year-old Sandra Kane, who was found on the road along Interstate 44. My friends, that is the story of the package killer, serial killer who evaded arrest in connection to these crimes for over 30 years, already spending the rest of his life in prison, but at least now there's closure for the families. My friends, I'm Manny Rodriguez. Thank you for joining me today. I hope you got some value from this. I'm Manny. Thank you for staying. I look forward to serving you again. Peace.